Praise the Lord. This is the end of God's instructions to Moses at the top of Mount Sinai. Starting in the next chapter, we go back down from Mount Sinai and we see all the foolishness happening around the base of the mountain. So for since chapter 25, Moses has been up on the mountain in God's presence and God has been given instructions to Moses. That's... My math is not great, but that's six chapters, right? Seven chapters? So, he has been, we've been in this for a long time, talking about God's instructions. What? Give me a summary of what all God has told Moses as he is up on the mountain receiving instruction all by himself. Yeah, the instruments for the tabernacle, the furniture for the tabernacle, the tabernacle itself, how to build it. The measurements, the specifications, the name some of the furniture that we've talked about. The basin. The basin, yeah, the wash basin, the bronze labor. That was last time. Altar. How many altars? Big one and a little one. Big one and a little one, right. Bronze altar is for what? Yeah, it's out front. It's for a sacrifice, animals, and grain offerings, and all those offerings. What's the other altar? Altar of incense. Where is it located? Inside, right before the veil, right in front of the mercy seat, right before the presence of God. We also talked about all the stuff, you know, the table of showbread, the lampstand, all of the things that God commanded. And Moses is receiving these instructions because Moses is, of course, God's prophet, God's leader of the people. But now, as we look at the instructions that these final instructions, in chapter 31, he's going to receive as God closes this, what we find out later is a 40-day, 40 40-night 40 period that Moses is up on the mountain. Uh, he receives these instructions, and we know that Moses is God's leader. He's the one God speaks to face-to-face, and he is the one that is um, God's prophet for the people, intercedes for the people, the mediator between the people. But Moses is not a stone cutter. He's not a metal worker. He's not a woodworker. Moses is not the man that's going to get out and start sewing fabric for the temple curtains or, or cutting the beams and all that stuff. So God, God ends his instructions to Moses on the mountain before Moses is told to go back down because of all the you know, golden calf and all that's going, down, going on at the base of the mountain. God ends his instructions to Moses in chapter 31 by telling him that uh, there are two men that he has, God has specifically called out to head up the building of all that God has commanded. And they are probably the two most important names of guys that you have never heard of before. Now, most people don't know who they are and have never heard of them. You know their names without looking down at your Bible? No. Uh, nobody does, yeah. It's Bezalel and Ahaliab. Say that five times real fast. So what we're going to do is we're going to read verses 1 through 12, and then we're going to back up and take them section by section. And then we're, after, the, after we finish talking about the, that section, we're going to read the whole next section and then take it piece at a time. Sound good? Yes. Okay. So it says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, 
to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Ahaliab, the son of Ahisamach and of the tribe of Dan, and I've given to all I've given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. The tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that's on it, the furnishings of the tent, the table, its utensils, pure lampstand with all its utensils, altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and all of its utensils, the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priest, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense of the holy place. All of those things we have talked about in turn. Finally, he says, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do so what he says in basically summarizing it Moses I've told you what to do I've told you how to build the tabernacle I told you how big it needs to be I've told you what the curtains need to be and how the gold rings hold the curtains and all where the beams go and I've told you all the stuff and all the furniture now I'm telling you I've called these specific two men to head this project up to be the craftsmen of this and he says I've called them by name in verse 1, he said, it says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, the tribe of Judah. And so he doesn't, God just doesn't say, Moses, go find some guys who are good at this stuff, you know, who, who know how to build stuff, who know how to work with wood. And remember, there was gold, you know, statues made of the cherubim on top of the mercy seat. And there were pomegranates worked into the curtains. I mean, there were all of these things, all of these things that God had commanded to be done. And before he even let's Moses go to start thinking about how all this is even going to be able to take place. God says, I've already chosen the two men that are my choice for this job. They were called to do this. Now, if God wanted, he could have miraculously built the tabernacle. Did he need Moses or Ahaliab or Bezalel or any of these guys? No. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He created the whole creation just through his word. He could have spoke the tabernacle into existence. He didn't need anybody to swing a hammer, didn't need anybody to knit a curtain, but God chose to call certain people and the nation as a whole to this task, to build this tabernacle, this place of worship for himself, for his name, for his glory. What does this teach us about how, about how God operates with us as well? Yeah, he wants to use us for sure. Wants to use us for his glory. You know, he wants, um, he, he has chosen uh, specifically in a general sense the body of Christ to work in the world, uh, to, for him to work through us in the world. That includes the church worshiping together, fellowshipping together, connecting together. It also includes the church sending missionaries out into the far reaches of the world. Uh, God has chosen his people to use his people for his glory, for his namesake, to increase his kingdom. Does that mean it's all up to us to increase his kingdom? No. Of course not. No, the power by which we work is not our own. It's not our striving. It's not our toil. It's not our... our uh, inventiveness it is God's uh, God's power by which he does this and it isn't it isn't only folks like Moses also who receive a calling from God to serve so Moses is I mean we've been talking about Moses since the beginning of Exodus you know and before that we've talked about Abraham we went through all the way through the book of Genesis talked about all the fathers and and, and sometimes we read these these 
great men's names and who they are and these stories about them and how God used them and what God did in them. And we think, you know, that that's just a special kind of thing that God ha has done with them. And, and indeed it is with Moses in particular and Abraham. But God calls all of us. God calls all of us not to preach and prophesy and teach and all those things. God calls us to use what he's given us for his glory. Some of, you know, obviously Bezalel wasn't a prophet. Ohaliab wasn't a prophet. They were, they were artisans. They were metal workers. They were woodworkers. They were, they were skilled laborers. And God calls them to serve him. God, in fact, picked them out by name. They're not standing there with Moses. He's alone talking to Moses in the, uh, in the cloud of his presence up on the top of the mountain. And God had already chosen these two men to head this project up out out um, of all the people of the nation of Israel. All of our skills are from God and are given that we might use them to serve God. And Bezalel and Ahaliab were, I guess you could say they would be the foreman, so to speak. Because in verse 6 he said, I've, I've given all men of ability, or I've given all men that are able ability that are going to be doing this. And if you turn over to chapter 35, which we'll get to in about 15 years probably, <laughs> It says that every skillful one, when this was actually being done, when they started making these things, verse 25 of chapter 25 said, Every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they'd spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. So God used many people in Israel, their skills and their talents, giving them ability it says, as many of the women whose hearts were stirred in them to use their skill. What stirred their hearts, do you think? The Holy Spirit. It was God. It was God. These two craftsmen, Bezalel and Ahaliab, were to oversee it all. But I want you to make sure you see this. We're called to use our skills. We're called uh, by God to serve Him in whatever area He's called us. Uh, but when God called these two men to serve, Bezalel and Ahaliab, when He called them to serve in building the tabernacle, God also equipped them to be able to do the things that God had called them to do and to do them the way that God wanted them done. Did you see it in verse 3? We say, he says, I have filled, them, filled him, Bezalel is who he's talking about right now, with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence and knowledge and all craftsmanship, and this is why, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, bronze, cutting stones for setting, carving wood, to work in every craft. God equipped him. Now, verse 3, we know our Bibles really well in this room, so we, we know, we see the phrase, I filled him with my spirit, or filled him with the spirit of God, and we say, well, yeah, of course he did. But in verse 3 of Exodus chapter 31, this is the first time in all of Scripture, if you're starting at the beginning and reading through, that this phrase, I've filled him, filled with the Spirit of God, appears in the Bible. Someone is specifically said to be filled with the Spirit of God. It's the first time it appears in Scripture. So from Genesis to Exodus, this is it. And he wasn't a prophet, he wasn't a priest. He didn't foretell anything. He didn't speak for God to the people. He didn't teach. He didn't prophesy. He didn't sing. You know, didn't do any of those things. He was filled with the Spirit of God to do what? To create. Yeah. To create. To, to use His, not only His, I think, this is not in the text. This is my opinion. I think He was already a craftsman. 
and God chose him, but God imbued him with the Holy Spirit to be able to do the things, to use this, this craft that he already knew how to do or had some skill in to make him where he was by the Spirit of God able to accomplish the task God had set him to do. So it's my opinion. I can't prove it and you can't disprove it so it doesn't matter. We don't know anything about Bezalel. We don't know any, where he come from other than he's from the tribe of Judah. We don't know if he was a woodworker or if he was just some dude. God said, hey, I'm going to imbue him. But I think God called these men because they were already craftsmen. Maybe they learned their skill in Egypt. We don't know that for sure. That's not in the text. But the point he's making, the point he makes here is God said to Moses, listen, I have filled him with a spirit and the spirit is going to guide him, lead him, enable him to be able to do these things that I'm calling him to do, to work with gold, to work with wood, to work with stone, to do the fabrics, to do all the things that he is going to do. He was filled with the spirit in the trade that God was calling him to work. Now, I don't know this either, but in my mind, I picture Bezalel as just some dude in overalls, you know, or hard hat. He's got a hard hat on, steel toe boots, you know, just a regular guy. I don't know if any of that's true. That's just how I picture it. But his calling was from God to use these skills and these God-given gifts of the Spirit to serve God. He was filled with the Spirit of God to do these things. Now, be careful when you read verse 3 because he's not saying, God's not saying, I have given Bezalel five different things. I've given him the spirit. I've given him ability. I've given him intent. He's not saying that. He's given him one thing or one person. He's filled him with the spirit, and the spirit has endowed Bezalel with ability, intelligence, knowledge, craftsmanship, and the ability to do all the things that he is doing. God's spirit is going to guide his work. God's spirit is going to enable his work. These artistic gifts, if you want to call them that way, that these men possess, they, they came from God. Um, uh, questions, comments, cries of outrage? Yes? You got, uh, this is probably chase the rabbit, but. Rabbits are good. These two guys, you've got, what, one to three million people down there? Uh, yeah, there's estimates between yeah. a million and two million. And, and you've got to you've got to give God how everything's gonna work. How then two people and three million people mm -hmm. would get where they need to get yeah. to do all this. Right. And it, it would it, it just boggles my mind. Well, there's a couple things to consider. Everybody hear that? Do I need to repeat it? Everybody hear what Denny said? Just these two guys building for three million people. Um, so here's a couple things you need to consider. Number one, remember when we talked about cubit is 18 to 24 inches in there somewhere. Um, the tabernacle is not that big. So it's not as big as we kind of tend to make it. Uh, number two is, so it's 12 tribes. 11 twelfths of Israel never saw inside the tabernacle. Never went in never saw the inside not one time it was just the levites the only people that went inside so this is not a this is not a place that's going to house three million people or that three million people are ever going to be in 
but they're you know they're going to go into the courtyard even the outer rims of the courtyard as they sacrifice and stuff like that so um the idea is the idea is not that you know that it's going to have to it's going to have to be big enough for for everybody but it's just this is the place where god's presence is going to gather specifically to meet with moses and later the high priest as he went in once a year for the day of atonement um, but then you know there's some estimates of 15 20,000 levites that are going to be going back and forth in the tabernacle so but you're right it is i think more than just the magnitude of the size of the tabernacle or the gold work on the uh, all the furniture inside the holy place was gold all in the courtyard was bronze and all of that work that had to go in the hammering of that and all that all that stuff um I think the we're not told anything about Bezalel here other than Mos, uh, Moses is told this is the guy that you need to go get. But if I was him, I think just the the magnitude of making sure that it had to be right. I mean, God was pretty specific about this big, these kind of horns, this kind of thing on the side. You know, he was pretty specific. And just the magnitude of what these, this means, you know, what you're doing, what you're putting your hands on in fashioning this gold around these cherubim, you know, or making these cherubim out of gold that are going to be on the mercy seat is you, you're making you're making the the mercy seat here where God's holy presence is going to dwell. And when God's holy presence dwells in this place, you know, knowing that. That's a dangerous thing. We've talked about it many times. You go behind that curtain and you ain't supposed to. What happens? You die. You die. That's it. So yeah, it was a huge thing. And and I don't think, based on the rest of the text throughout uh, the last five chapters of Exodus, when they actually start building these things, um, uh, it was a lot of people involved. I think Bezalel and Ahaliab were kind of what we might call the foreman. You know, kind of. Um, but it does say something that's really interesting here. It says that I have imbued him, filled him with my spirit, given him ability, intelligence, knowledge, all those things. And verse 4 says, to devise artistic designs. Now what does that phrase mean to you just off the top of your head? I know we're not talking about what does a Hebrew mean or anything. What does it mean to devise an artistic design? What would you think that means? Huh? Yes. Get the idea of it in your head and then bring it bring about. Yeah, just... It, to devise the artistic design means to come up with the the artistry of it, right? So God, if you if you've been walking through this text with us, God gave Moses plenty of instruction about the size, the shape, all of the things. And, and the text says in verse six here and in verse eleven that we read that they're to build this is exactly as God has commanded. But God also left a lot unspecified that required artistic design. We talked about it as we looked at pictures of uh, people's uh, models of the tabernacle. You know, the, the people's models, they, they never look exactly the same. They're roughly the same, but they never look exactly the same because there were a lot of things that weren't specified. God didn't specify in the text how, what the cherubim looked like. Or, or, or how they should look like in the on top of the mercy seat. He didn't explain how the molding looked that went around the rim of the table of showbread. He didn't give a specific pattern for the colored threads that would be in the in the the 
curtains or, or the garments of the high priest. He just said they would be made of blue and purple and scarlet and all, all those things. And the last piece of furniture that we looked at was the bronze laver, the, the wash basin. And there were no instructions given about it at all. You remember? It, it didn't say anything. He just said, make a, make a wash basin. And that was it. No this high, no this big. No, There was none of that given. So presumably, and if anybody wants to push back on this, please do, because I don't know, and the text doesn't tell us, presumably these things were left up to the Holy Spirit in Bezalel and Ahaliab to design and to, to make according to their artistic design. I think that's what it means by devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, bronze, and to do all these things. It's not just the skill to be able to do them, but they were devising, art. they were using their artistic skill, their their craftsmanship to to do so. Anybody want to push back on that? Well, I'd say they'd be engineers. <laughs> engineers? Yeah, yeah, you'd have to be an engineer. Yeah. For it's sure. Designed to design what even close to what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. So God imbued them with his spirit, filled him, filled them with his spirit to be able to design the things left unspecified but also to build the things as God had commanded them to build. Making, you know, I, and this is all just coming out of my imagination. It, it, you know, I see them making right decisions, right choices about creating this design and how the purple should look and with the scarlet, you know, all of those things. Um, it's as if maybe, you know, God said, you know, I, I've told you what to do. And I've told you what materials you use. I've told you some specifications about how these things are to look. And I've given you the parameters. Now he's telling Bezalel and Ahaliab, go walk in the Spirit and do the task that I've set for you to do. And there's going to be decisions for you to make there. And there's going to be ways for you to you know, use your gift and do it this way and not this way. As long as it's within the parameters of my word and what I've given you, um, I I've set you upon the task. Now go and, and use what I've given you. What does that teach us about how we live? How we serve? Same way. Mm -hmm. we, we listen. We, we, the Spirit talks to us. Sure. And we need to listen. And, and He's going to guide us that way. Yeah, we walk in the Spirit. We are led by the Spirit. We follow the will of the Spirit. Always within the parameters of God's Word. God's Word is the plumb line, the infallible... Uh, unchangeable parameter of God's will and as long as we're walking within that parameter you know there's a Kevin DeYoung wrote a great book he said just do something you know he's about how to find the will of God you know and he says the God has a perfect will that only he knows it's his decreed will God has a permissive will where he tells us what he wants thou shalt not kill thou shalt not steal you know that's his permissive will uh, and so often we get hung up on God's directive will which he never really offers you know like you know where do I go to school or what is this person I should marry or what state should I live in or whatever and, and the idea that the idea that um, uh, what we see here is you, you know, God, sometimes he will lead you and you'll know this is what I'm supposed to do. But there are other times where you, whatever's, whatever place that I can serve the Lord best and where my gifts are going to be used, where God's calling me, that's where I need to be. And so you just do something, you know, that's what, that's what the book says anyway. So we are called to walk in the spirit as we've been talking about in Galatians for six months. 
and we are to do so always, always, always by the plumb line of His Word. Because there are some times where our own flesh, our own temptations, our own minds creep in. We have that guiding standard of the unchangeable, inerrant Word. God will equip us to do whatever He calls. We see that here. Um, neither, I, neither, no matter what kind of craftsmen these guys were, neither Bezalel nor Ahaliab nor any of these people had ever built a tabernacle before or these kinds of altars before, but God equipped them to do it because He called them by name to do it. God's call, God calls His people to use their gifts to glorify Him, and He equips those supernaturally with those that He calls. And make sure you remember, it wasn't just these two guys alone. There was others called as well. The next verse, verse 6, said, uh, I have appointed him with Ahaliab, the son of Ahishamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I've given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. Okay? We've already talked about that. So. And then 7 through 10, we won't read it again, but that's the, basically the task. All the things, you know. They're going to build all the things. The tent, mercy seat, the altars, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then we've talked about stuff for weeks. And in verse 11, I want to bring your attention to it. says, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. This is the pattern. And I want to reiterate this one more time. This is important. So it's not just the people that they're imbued to follow their own desires. Doing God's work means doing His will. So the craftsmen are to do the work just as God has commanded them according to the pattern that He gave on the mountain. All things, I said it a minute ago, I'm going to say it again, it's important, all things are tested, measured by the Word. What if Bezalel came up to Moses and said, you know, I know that you said the bronze altar needs to be three cubits high, but after looking at the design, I really think three and a half cubits is going to be a whole lot better. <laughs> I don't think that would be good. <laughs> yeah, that was one place where God specified specifically what He desired. And so that would, that would not be a place where artistic design or creative license would be allowed, I wouldn't think. So God's people are called to their task, whatever that may be, equipped, empowered for the task, and we work within the commands of God. And we're going to see that a little more in the next section as well. Um, and then at the end of, at the end, this is the end of Moses' Sinai encounter with God. Um, it seems like from verse 12 on through the rest of the chapter, which is only 18 verses, so it's not very long. It seems like God just switches gears again and he talks about the Sabbath again. So, in these verses, the 12 through 18, he's going to start talking all about the Sabbath all over again after he talks about all the building and all the things that you're going to make and all this. So, are we really going to talk about the Sabbath again? The answer is yes, we are. In Exodus, God mentions the Sabbath five times. The first, anybody know when the first, other than creation, of course, God rested, other than that. Anybody know when the first time? Remember? You don't have to know chapter and verse, just what was going on. When he introduced the concept of the Sabbath. Manna. The manna. That's right. Six days you'll gather. On the seventh you'll gather because there won't, there won't be any. And so you rest. 
So that was the first time. Second time was, of course, the commandment. You know, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. The third is in the Book of the Covenant when God was giving Moses kind of the case law of how to interpret the Ten Commandments. So we walked endlessly through that. You remember that? And this is the fourth time here in Exodus 31. And it's gonna, he's going to talk about the Sabbath again in chapter 35. So remembering the Sabbath day is obviously very, very important to God. So let's read 12 through 18, and then we will come back and talk about it. Y'all feel free to jump in anytime. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, plural, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. On the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on the Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Now, I learned something new that I never knew this week. It's, it's, it's pretty fascinating to me. It's probably not going to be that fascinating to you guys, but I found it very fascinating. It starts with the Lord said, and the Lord said. You see that? I mean, it's pretty plain. Of course you see it. So... Moses has been on the mountain getting instructions from God on all this stuff since chapter 25, right? So there's a guy named Peter Inns who is a, a scholar and a textual scholar and just, you know, very, very, very good scholar. He wrote about, and, and I read this and it, it just was amazing. He wrote about how chapter 25 through 31, the time of Moses on the mountain speaking to God, is broken up into seven sections. And all seven of those sections begin with, and the Lord said. And so the same phrase that begins each of these seven sections of his instruction on the mountain is the same phrase that begins each of the seven days of creations. And the, and the Lord said. And here we are at the seventh time that God it says, and the Lord said, and what's he talking about? He's talking about the Sabbath, Sabbath rest, even comparing the Sabbath rest to the the day when God rested on the seventh day of creation. So ends, Peter ends correlates that into God speaking, creating His nation into existence, uh, His people and their worship in the same way that He created heavens and earth. That's interesting, isn't it? That's pretty interesting to me anyway. Is it an airtight case? I'm not sure. I hadn't studied it, but man, it sure is interesting. So why does he mention the Sabbath? I mean, other than the pattern, you know, we... Besides that, why does he mention the Sabbath here again? And why does he say, above all? Because in the process of building all these things, in your mind you might think, i got to get this thing done. Yeah. And I can just, I'm almost done, I'm almost there, and it's Saturday. And be tempted, <laughs> man, Sunday I know exactly what to do. But you're supposed to rest. Yeah. That's, you hit the nail on the head. In the context, remember... All Scripture is to be taken in context. If you're not reading what came before, what came after, you're probably not rightly understanding. It is a unified whole, a story of God 
written, uh, inspired, inerrant by God. And so if you take what just came before, as Frank said, what were we just talking about? We're talking about these guys who are going to be building this stuff. So what is he saying when he says, okay, this is what I want you to build. This is what I want you to create. This is what I want you to make. This is how I want you to make it. These are the guys that are going to make it. Now, above all, you keep my Sabbath. What is he saying? Day of rest. Day of rest. To observe me. That's right. He's saying the building of this tabernacle and the building of all these things and these workers that are going to be working, you are not to break the Sabbath to build this tabernacle. It pertains to what he just said about all these builds. They're called to do the work. They're imbued by God's power, by God's Spirit to do the work. Uh, but even in the work that God called them to do, they are not to forsake the Sabbath. To forsake the Sabbath in building the tabernacle would really undermine the whole reason for having a tabernacle. You know, the tabernacle was for worship, for sacrifice to be offered, for the people to be in the presence of God, God to dwell among His people. That's what the word tabernacle means, is dwelling. And, and so when we, when, if they weren't obeying God's Word in the way they were going about fulfilling God's calling... They were disobeying the heart of what God was telling them to do. How do we do that sometimes? Where we try to do God's work, but we're not doing it the, God, God's, the way God has commanded us to do it. Or we're breaking these commands in order for the greater good to do God's work over here. I mean, you don't have to give me a specific example of how you do it, but how do people do it? How do people do it? How do we do it sometimes? Skipping church on Sundays. Skipping church on Sunday. That'd be a good, for, you know, for whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, for, work. huh? And work. Work. When they have to go to work at a specific place. Sure. Working too much. Yeah, working too much where you never get a day of rest. Yeah, we're going to talk about Saturday, Sunday here in just a minute, so we'll hit that in a second. Yeah. But yeah, so you can be, you can be, you can be wrapped up in the ministry where you don't ever get a day of rest, where you don't get ever, and it's not just for rest. It is for rest, but it's also to set aside the day for God, to focus on God, to worship God, to. Remembrance of God, devotion to God, you know, to develop your relationship with God. It, it's a day for rest, but it's also a day set aside for God. We're going to see that in a minute in some of the purposes he gives for the Sabbath. So God tells Moses next. Um, that point was basically we don't disobey God's word in the way that we live out our calling that he's called us to. That's uh, pretty straightforward. So then God tells Moses some of the purposes of the Sabbath. And, and it's here, the fourth time that we've heard about the Sabbath in Exodus, that God begins to add some things that we haven't seen before about the Sabbath that kind of give us a well-rounded view of how God sees the Sabbath and what its purpose is. So we know it was a day of rest, right? So we, we've seen that before. When the manna, he said, on that day you'll rest, you won't do it. And we know that it's a day set aside holy to the Lord because in the commandment he said, you will remember this day to keep it holy. Um, but here he also says that it is a sign. It's a sign that shows 
that it's the Lord that makes you holy or sanctifies you. Do you see it? It says, You shall keep my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you or make you holy or set you apart. Many of your translations could say any of those words. So, God, it's a sign that shows us, it's a sign showing us that the Lord is the one who makes us holy, who sanctifies us. So the Sabbath rest and the focus on God, on God's worship, it was designed to show, designed to grow God's people in knowing their God. Their, their covenant relationship was a sanctifying relationship. And Sabbath was part of that. So as, for instance, as their week centered around this one day, their week centered around a day set apart for God, they would be continually reminded that God was the one on whom that they depended and that whom they served. You know, um, a lot of times if, if we don't have that time of... Why don't we take a time of rest in our daily lives sometimes? Just generic answers. We're too busy, too much work to do, can't get things done. What is all of that? And we all fall into it. I fall into it just as bad as anybody else. But what does that say about what we believe about God when we say, I'm too busy, i got to get this done, and if I take a day of rest, I'm not going to be able to get done what I need to get. What does that say about God? Not trusting in God. Saying that we don't trust He's going to provide. We don't trust that He's able to provide. So we have to do it. If I don't get it done, it's not going to get done. Or we're putting too much stock in what it is that we're trying to get done. Uh, saying that it's too important and I can't let it wait. You know, I can't let it wait till Monday. I've got to, I've got to get it done now. A guy named Leonard Duhan said, People who refuse to observe the Sabbath are those who trust in their own strength rather than God's grace. So by observing the Sabbath, God's people acknowledge that their hope is in God, that their trust is in God, not themselves, not their efforts, not their works, not their, their, their ability to produce, but it's in the God who provides God's grace and God's mercy. And God even says this is a sign of remembrance. It's a sign, He says, that you will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So it's a sign for other nations, of course, but it's a sign for, that belongs to His people, that you're made holy by Him. And it's so serious, it's so serious. Here they attach, He attaches the death penalty. You shall keep the Sabbath because it's holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it shall be cut off from His people. Six days will work be done, but the seventh is a Sabbath of solemn rest. Holy to the Lord, whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, put to death. Does that seem harsh? Say so, now half of you saying yeah and half of you saying no. It's not I'm I'm not trying to trick you. I'm not it's not a trick question. But the Lord says it that's that's where it is. Yeah, for sure. So so it tends to seem harsh to us because I mean, let's face it, how many people in this room have always kept the Sabbath? Yeah. <laughs> so we'd all be dead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Jason, yes. what's the difference between profaning it and 
doing work on it. There you go. That's a good question. She asks, what's the difference between profaning it and doing any work on it? There are some that say it's the same thing and to be cut off from the people means to die. There's some that say that. There's some that say that doing any work on it is different from profaning it uh, in the sense of intent. Uh, so I, I don't care. I'm just going to do it. Profanes it. These are all theories. I, I don't have a, this is what it means for you. I'm just giving you a bunch of different theories of people. Uh, some say that profaning it means you do it with intent uh, and, and just accidentally doing something you're not supposed to do is to be cut off from the people. It means, you know, kicked out of Israel. There's an episode in Numbers where someone is doing just regular work on a Sabbath day and he's put to death. So that's why many think that it's basically just restating profaning and doing work on the Sabbath is. Now, we're going to talk about, we're going to, stay with me. There's, there's a whole New Testament concept. We're going, to, we're going to talk about all that, but just stay with me for right now. So, it might, it might be in there because the wages of sin is death. One sin and you go to hell. So that's teaching in the holiness of God. For sure, for sure. You hear that? Yeah. Just the wages of sin is death. So whether we're talking about profaning the Sabbath, whether we're talking about using God's name in vain, whether we're talking about having a lustful thought, the wages of sin is death. We deserve to die. We deserve to die. We deserve to be separated from God. And also just, I mean, in our minds, it's not right, but in our minds, we tend to think that, you know, mowing my grass on the Sabbath just ain't that big a deal. You know, and it ain't. You know, we're going to talk about the New Testament pattern, and all this stuff. We're going to talk about that, man. But for these Israelites hearing this for the first time, we just tend to think it's not that big a deal. But you need to realize what the Sabbath was intended to be. It was to be set apart for the Lord. So by refusing to keep the Sabbath, Israel would have been saying, "I'm not interested in knowing God. I'm not interested in depending on God." So. To profane the Sabbath or to refuse to keep the Sabbath was an act of rebellion against God. Dishonoring, it was dishonoring God's covenant. You remember Israel was on the mountain and God said, okay, here's my ten words. Here's my ten laws. And one of them was, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And what did Israel say after all the laws were given? Everything you said, we will do. This is part of the covenant. So they would be breaking the covenant. It would be like saying, my relationship with you is not important to me. Your covenant is not important to me. You're not worthy to take the time to know or to worship. So yeah, it was punishable by death. Question. Should we put Sabbath breakers to death today? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to ask who said that. <laughs> All right, so I want to call. Remember when we started talking about the law and working through the law and working through all the different things? Remember that the Sabbath command is unique in the Ten Commandments. Or not in the Ten Commandments, but in all of the case law and all of the myriad of laws. It contains, the Sabbath law, contains all three elements, all three types of Old Testament law. What are the three types of Old Testament law? Remember? Civil law. Wait a minute. Let's define them as we go. What is the civil law? Right. Civil law. Civil law is. It pertains to Israel under the theocracy of God. 
So there's lots of laws about punishment and justice when it comes to, you know, somebody, if you steal somebody's donkey, you got to give them three donkeys and an extra, you know. The civil laws that pertain to Israel. We don't keep the civil law of Israel because we're told in the New Testament more than once by Peter and Paul that we are to be obedient to the government that we are under. And he wrote that under the government of Nero. So for us to go out there and start stoning people uh, would be against the law of the land that we live under. Also, capital punishment, the execution of criminals, was never ever, even in the Old Testament theocracy, it was never done by individuals. So it wasn't like you could just grab some stones and start throwing them. It was always done by the governing body, the elders of Israel. It was done by the people as they came together under the rulership of God. So capital. So for us to grab somebody who breaks the Sabbath and bring them out back behind the church and stone them to death would not only be, not only be uh, illegal, but it would be immoral. Um, and so we don't keep the civil laws. Now remember, though, there's general equity in the civil law. So there are principles in the civil law that we do keep. What's the one I always tell you all? Yeah, you were commanded to build a parapet around your roof in the civil law so, because that's where people gathered. You didn't want them falling off. And the principle, the general equity of that law is we are to take care of people when they're in our home and to protect them when they're in our home. Make sure that you know, they're, they're safe in our homes. Okay. Second law, second kind of law is what? Ceremonial law. Okay, what is a ceremonial law? Yeah, being clean before God. Being able to come into God's presence. So you touch a dead body, you got to go wash for seven days. You know, uh, if... I'm not going to say that. Yeah. Uh, lots of different ways to be made unclean. And you had to go through the ritual of cleanliness and all that kind of stuff. Food laws that would make you unclean. All of those things. And the ceremonial aspect of the law is no longer binding on us. Why? Jesus has made us clean. He fulfilled the ceremonial laws. He, he is the perfect sacrifice that makes atonement for our sin. And we are clean before God because of Him, which is why in Acts chapter 10, Jesus Himself showed Peter the big thing full of bacon and, and pigs and all that stuff. And He said, Don't you call anything unclean what that I've made clean. Jesus has made us clean. So... The funeral director who's getting the body ready doesn't have to wash for seven days before he comes to church. He's clean because of Christ. So there's a ceremonial aspect. And the third aspect of the Old Testament law is? Moral. The moral law, which is? It is binding for all people in all circumstances, in all cultures from the very beginning of time. So the Sabbath law contains all three elements, which is very unique when it comes to the law. So... The civil law of the Sabbath keeping involved the punishment for Sabbath, but it also involved a lot of the things that you do on a, on a Sabbath, depending on what ancient Israel might do, lighting lamps and that kind of thing. Uh, but it also includes a ceremonial aspect, and we find that in Hebrews chapter 4. So as he's talking about, as he's talking about the Sabbath rest in Hebrews, he says, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. What rest is he talking about right there? He's talking about the creation of God's rest at creation, but what rest 
remains for his people. What rest is he referring to? I guess I could have put more of the text there than you would have known for sure. He's talking about salvation. When we enter into Christ, we rest from our works. We rest from our works just as God rested from His. And so there's an element where Christ fulfills the Sabbath. But there's also a moral aspect to the Sabbath law, which is what? We've talked about it in every time we've talked about the Sabbath. Moral aspect. Remember, the Sabbath was given before the law was given. It was true at creation. It was true when God gave the manna before the law of Moses was ever given. So, what's the moral aspect? None? Well, don't everybody speak at the same time. One day in seven, set apart for God. And I think that's why the Old Testament always phrases it this way. Always phrases it is six days you work, one day set apart. One day in seven is given to the Lord. One day in seven. That's the, the reason it's still binding is because it's a creation ordinance. And that's why, that's why he says in the text that we're studying, he said it's a sign forever because six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the seventh day he rested. It's a creation ordinance. So it doesn't pass away uh, just with the giving of the law or with the fulfillment of the law in Jesus Christ. So we still have one day in seven that we are called to make holy to the Lord for worship, for rest, uh, for our own good, long before the law was ever given. And it's a sign that we belong to the covenant community. Oh, sorry, 16 and 17 say this, The people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel. Here's a sign that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh that He rested and was refreshed. The Sabbath is a sign that we belong to the covenant community, that we depend upon God, that we honor God, that we spend time with God, that we worship God. And the Sabbath is not, man, i got to hurry up. The Sabbath is not meant to be a restriction. That's where we get so, that's where we get so messed up because you hear Sabbath law and you think, oh no, i got to keep it. It's not meant to be a restriction. It's not meant to be a burden. It's meant to be a blessing. A time of refreshment where we rest in God. The myriad of laws that the Jews created for the Sabbath made it a burden on the people, not what God intended. They had to labor to get through it. They had to endure the Sabbath because all of the things that... that needed to be done on that day, integral things, not just you know fun things or working things and not the regular work of the week, but just things that needed to be done couldn't be done. So much so that even today, I mean, many of y'all have been to Israel. You know the deal that like they, they don't push buttons in elevators. They don't, you know, open refrigerators because the light will come on. You know, they, they're just holding so strictly to these things. It makes it a burden. It makes it a. It makes it just a heavy weight that you have to. It was never intended to be that way. That's why Jesus came and, and he said. You know, no, you're to do good on the Sabbath. You know, would you rather do good or would you rather not do good when he healed the man on the Sabbath? He said he let his disciples pick grain on the Sabbath. You know, he said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's not supposed to be a burden. It's not supposed to be a law that that puts an extra weight upon us. 
And ultimately, with the resurrection of Christ, the day of rest for the church, for worship and dedication to God, was changed to Sunday. And the early Jewish Christians called it not the Sabbath, but the Lord's Day. Who changed it? What's the right answer if you're in church? Jesus, Jesus changed it. He was resurrected on Sunday, of course. You know that. But He also appeared to His gathered disciples the next two Sundays. Sunday evening, He appeared. Remember Thomas wasn't there? The next Sunday evening, He appeared again and Thomas was there. And from that time on, the early church found their day of rest and their day of worship on the first day of the week. On the first day of the week, the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it was the first day of the week that the church gathered to break bread. In 1 Corinthians 16, 2, it was the first day of the week that they came together to present their tithes and offerings. And so the Sabbath, which means the word means to cease, it's still applicable for the New Testament church today. One day in seven set apart to the Lord. Is that a hard or an easy command for us to keep? One day in seven for rest and for worship and dedicated, set apart wholly to the Lord. Hard or easy? I guess it depends upon where your priorities are. Isn't that the truth? So I got this quote. It doesn't just talk about Sabbath, but I thought it was a very interesting quote. You know, y'all know who J.C. Penney is, right? J.C. Penney said this. He said, If a man's business requires so much of his time that he cannot attend the Sunday morning and evening services and Wednesday night prayer meeting, then that man has more business than God intended him to have. <laughs> and so this, this chapter 31 ends the section of God's instructions to Moses on Mount Sinai. Ends the instructions on the tabernacle, the furniture, uh, the worship days, the case law that interprets the Ten Commandments, uh, all of the instructions on Mount Sinai. And beginning in the next chapter, we're going to find out that while the great and wonderful godly Moses is up on the mountain, the people are acting a fool down at the bottom of the mountain. And so finally, at the very end, he says, And God gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Moses has been on the mountain for 40 days, 40 nights. We learned that in Deuteronomy. God gave him the pattern for the tabernacle, gave him the book of the covenants, what we call the case law of the Ten Commandments. Uh, he gave the... You know, all of the stuff. He gave all the stuff. How to keep the Sabbath and all that kind of stuff. He gave Moses finally the written record of the Ten Commandments written in stone, written with finger of God on two tablets. And we know it was the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue it's called, because he calls it the Tablets of the Testimony. They would later put them in the Ark of the Covenant, which is why it's also called the Ark of the Testimony. Um... You know, you might have seen, might have seen Charlton Heston and all, you know, the Ten Commandments movie. Um, and I don't know this for sure. This is just, this is a debate between different groups. But there are those that say that the two tablets were two copies of the Ten Commandments, not just 
the two, we call it the two tables of the law. You remember we called it that? First table is how to love God. First four commandments are God, word, and the, the next the next six are don't steal, don't kill, don't how to love your neighbor. Um, there are a lot of people, and I just learned this this week too, there's a lot of people that think that it was two copies of the Ten Commandments rather than just half and half because of, and this is not a, this is not a great argument, but this is the argument, because um, suzerain covenants that were made in the, uh, in the ancient Near East were, um, were often given, they were given two covenants to keep. One was for the party, the king to keep, and one was for the other party to keep. I don't know if that's true or not. I, I don't know, but 